Welcome to episode 11 of Reading During Recess. I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And today we're going to be talking about Anne Brashar's 2001 YA novel, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Woohoo! Sarah has been waiting for this one for a long time. Yes, we had to wait to read it in the summer because it's such a summer book. So uh, a little bit of background on the novel. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants is the first in a series of books. It came out in 2001, and it's a YA novel by Anne Brashears. As I said, it's the first in a series of five, and its sequels are The Second Summer of the Sisterhood, Girls in Pants, The Third Summer of the Sisterhood, Forever in Blue, The Fourth Summer of the Sisterhood, and Sisterhood Everlasting. Side note, I do not endorse Sisterhood Everlasting. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into it. Yeah. But only a little. I mentioned that we were going to get into it, and Sarah was like, I don't know how much of that I can take. (laughs) So, unlike Sisterhood Everlasting, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants was well-received upon its release, and it was a New York Times bestseller. And it was also published on 9-11, so it came out on September 11th, 2001, which just really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, you're like, this is my day. <laughs> like, I'll remember this day forever. This is my first book publication. <laughs> Turn off the news. This is all about me. (laughs) Oof. Oh, dear. That's interesting, though, because it means that all of this is pre-9-11. Yeah, you're right. Well, but this also means, in theory, the girls are about to experience 9-11. Like, they come back from their... Yeah, so they come back from their vacation, and they're like, I'm so happy to see you guys. And don't they live, like, just outside of D.C.? Oh, my God. This is awful. (laughs) And they're all... They all, their birthdays are all in September. Yes. They're like, oh, yay, it's our birthday month, sweet 16. Oh. Okay, anyway, all we, right, we've so got to get off this tangent. No, the podcast is over. Bye, everybody. <laughs> all right, but Sarah's right. We have to get off this. All right, just in case it's been a little bit since you guys have read this book, we are going to start off, as we always do, with a plot summary. So, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants takes place over the course of a summer, and it centers around four best friends. And their names are Carmen Lowell, Tibby Rollins, Lena Caligaris, and Bridget Vreeland. They are 15 years old, all four of them, and they've been best friends ever since their expectant mothers met at a prenatal aerobics class, which I think is really cute. But they are about to spend their first ever summer apart. So... Shy and beautiful Lena is headed to Greece to stay with her grandparents. Outgoing and adventurous Bridget is attending an elite soccer camp in Mexico. Introspective Carmen is visiting her father in South Carolina. And cynical Tibby is staying in Bethesda, Maryland to work at Walmans, which is kind of like Walgreens, I think. Yeah. So Tibby obviously is more than a little pissed off about this. Yes. So they're all feeling... A lot of emotions, but just a few days before they separate, Carmen finds a pair of secondhand jeans in a thrift store, and they end up in her bedroom where Tibby tries them on, and they all try them on and realize that the jeans fit all four of them perfectly, despite the fact that they are all different shapes and sizes. So this leads them to believe that the pants must be magical, and they decide to share them, making them the traveling pants, the titular. I love that word traveling pants over the course of the summer by mailing them to each other so in this way they are promising to share their experiences and stay connected and not forget one another 
And so from there, the narration follows each girl back and forth as conflicts begin to arise. So the aspiring filmmaker, Tibby, who is stuck in Bethesda, hates her job at Walman's and plans to make a suckumentary about her experience. Carmen arrives in South Carolina to spend that summer with her father and is devastated to find that he is engaged to a woman named Lydia and lives with her and her two teenage children. And they're getting married in August. It's all happening very quickly. It comes completely out of left field. Like, I don't know how to express to you. He doesn't even mention it in the car ride. Yeah, they literally show up at the house. (laughs) They just roll up at the house and she's like, why do you live with these kids? And he's like, oh, about that. (laughs) Funny you asked. It's like, I wanted to wait to tell you in person. I just, hands down, the worst parenting. Uh, Lena, who fears that boys are only interested in her for her looks because she's described as being, like, stunningly beautiful, suspects that she's caught the attention of a handsome Greek boy named Kostas. And at camp, Bridget develops an attraction to a 19-year-old coach named Eric and begins to pursue him. So one day, Tibby is working at Walman's and she sees a 12-year-old girl collapse. And she helps out. She takes her wallet and tries to figure out if she has any identification that they can use. And then later, after the girl has been taken to the hospital and then home, when she goes to return the wallet, she learns that this girl, Bailey, has leukemia. So partly out of guilt, Tibby lets Bailey become her filmmaking assistant because it seems like Bailey doesn't have very much to do. And the two develop this odd sort of friendship. Meanwhile, down in South Carolina, Carmen hates her dad's new family and feels very isolated, in part because of their physical differences. So Lydia and her children, who Carmen feels are running this kind of like Stepford perfect house, are white, blonde, blue-eyed, skinny. And Carmen is half Puerto Rican. She's full-figured. She doesn't look anything like them. And she feels like an outcast when she's around. And meanwhile, her dad is being, like, completely fucking useless. He's fully unaware of how she feels. He's canceling plans with her to <laughs> hang out with his uh, stepchildren. He's ignoring the comments that she's making about being unhappy. It's very painful. And Carmen is unwilling to admit that she feels angry at her father. And so she takes her hurt out on her new stepmother and siblings because Carmen's father... And mother got divorced when she was pretty young, and so she didn't grow up with her father being, like, a constant presence in her life. And so she feels very precious about her relationship with him, and it doesn't feel safe, I think, feeling angry at him, because she doesn't want to push him away. And so after a disastrous bridesmaid dress fitting, which is really awful, the owner of the bridal shop, like the seamstress or whatever, makes snide comments about Carmen's weight. She doesn't talk to her. She only she only talks to Lydia. She says, like, is this Al's daughter? Like, she doesn't look... <laughs> yeah. She doesn't look like Al's daughter. Ugh. It's awful. And Lydia and Krista are just completely useless. <laughs> yeah, they do absolutely nothing. They don't defend her. I don't think... We're not supposed to read them as villains in this story, um, even though Carmen does. But they're sure shit not helpful. So Carmen storms out of the store, and later she runs away from the house, and she comes back expecting to find her father looking for her, you know, maybe even having, like, called the police, and instead she sees the new family, including her dad, just calmly sitting down and enjoying dinner. When Carmen returns to the house, she's standing outside the window, looking in the dining room, and seeing this perfect little family 
enjoying dinner. No one seems to be concerned about where she is. And so she's furious. And so she throws a rock through the window and runs away to take a bus back home to Bethesda. And then she throws two rocks through the window. Yeah, that's true. The first one doesn't sail through cleanly. Yeah, it just hits it. And the second one, (laughs) second one almost decapitates one of the kids. (laughs) Carmen's got good aim. Yeah. And she later feels bad about it and mails her father money to help fix the broken windows. And in a phone call, she lets him know how upset she is and how much he hurt her. And I think it's worth noting that, again, Carmen runs away. She comes back later that night, like at three o'clock in the morning to get her things. Presumably everyone's asleep, you know, but her dad doesn't try to look for her. She gets back to Maryland and her father calls her mother to check and see if she got in okay, but doesn't seem to ask to speak to her. Doesn't even seem to be mad at her, just completely useless. I'm sorry, I hate the dad so much. And Carmen's phone call is very emotional, and we'll talk about it later on. But I'm glad she confronts him, because frankly, she should have thrown a third rock through the window and maybe aimed for pops this time, because this guy sucks. And all of this is intercut with other girls' experiences. So in Greece, reserved Lena, who is very shy, very protective of herself, goes skinny dipping in an isolated pond and is spotted by Kostos, who is a boy that we mentioned before. He's a family friend who she thinks is interested in her, but is mistrustful of because Lena is mistrustful of all boys. And she is furious. She thinks that he purposefully spied on her and had followed her there. And when she gets dressed, her clothes are very, they're thrown on very haphazardly. And she arrives at the house in tears, and there's a miscommunication that leads her grandparents to believe that Kostos attempted to assault her. And this obviously really damages the relationship between the two families. The grandpas wind up punching each other. And later on, Lena is surprised to realize that she's upset when Kostos is ignoring her. Yeah, so she feels really guilty, and one day she returns to the pond, and this time she sees Kostos skinny dipping. Just like, do they not have swimsuits in Greece? Yeah, what? Like, Lena was caught unaware, but like, does Kostos go there specifically to be naked? (laughs) And that's when she realizes that he hadn't actually been spying on her, and that this was probably his secret place where he liked to go skinny dipping (laughs) (laughs) in the summer. Kostos is a freak. (laughs) And he was probably surprised to see her there that day, just as much as she was surprised to see him. So it was a big miscommunication. She eventually, she owns up to her grandmother, which she hadn't done before. She hadn't been able to figure out a way to come clean to her grandmother before that Kostos hadn't touched her, but had instead, she thought, spied on her. But now she tells her, and it seems obvious that the relationship will be repaired. And Lena starts to realize that she's fallen in love with Kostos over the summer. And she apologizes to him while, of course, wearing the pants uh, and gives him a painting that she did of the special place. And the two kiss. So meanwhile, in Mexico, Bridget is at her elite soccer camp where she is continuing to flirt intensely with Eric. Eric is a coach who is 19 to, and Bridget is 15. And so Bridget is, like, sneaking out to follow him to a bar. She comes to his cabin at night sometimes to visit him. And also, she is a superstar on the soccer field, scores a ton of goals as a forward, and really frustrates her coach because her coach feels like Bridget is more interested in showing off than being part of a team. 
And one night, Eric relents um, when Bridget comes to visit him and the two presumably have sex, although it's not made explicitly clear, but I think that's definitely the implication. And Bridget slips into a depressive episode soon after. She stays in bed for days. She shouts at her coach and stops playing soccer and storms off the field during the final game. And then Lena arrives in Mexico at the very end of Bridget's stay to comfort her and to take Bridget home to Bethesda. And it's really sad to see because we've been with Bridget throughout this whole book and she's of such a vibrant character. She's very outgoing. She's unfailingly optimistic and positive. It's a pretty realistic, depressive episode, you know? Mm-hmm. And you really feel for her. Yeah, it's really sad. I remember as a kid watching her kind of fall into that depressive episode was really painful for me because she was definitely a character that I was like, you're the one that I'm least like, mm-hmm. but therefore I find you fascinating. Yeah. You know, because I'm like, I cannot relate to Happy Bridget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, meanwhile, back in Bethesda, Tibby, who has befriended Bailey, who you might remember has leukemia, is filming this documentary with her and is starting to appreciate the lame subjects of her documentary. She's always been a very cynical, judgmental person, but is starting to see beyond the exterior and is beginning to appreciate the people around her. But unfortunately, there's a day when Bailey doesn't come see her immediately after her shift and... Tibby finds out that Bailey is in the hospital with an infection, and it sounds like things are pretty bad. So she starts to become very withdrawn and isolated, and this coincides with the death of her beloved guinea pig, which is just awful. And she won't take any calls from Bailey or from her family and becomes very shut out from the world. And Carmen, who has just arrived home after (laughs) throwing rocks through her dad's window. You might remember Carmen, best known for... (laughs) Throwing rocks through her dad's window. So Tibby has been ignoring the calls, but Carmen heroically arrives and convinces her to take the calls and to visit Bailey in the hospital, where she spends a few days with her. And unfortunately, Bailey dies pretty soon after, and Tibby buries her guinea pig near her grave. You know, actually, she does not bury it near her grave. She buries it on her grave. Like, yeah. The soil is still loose there. Yeah, so after the funeral, Tibby, like, goes back at night and, and brings Mimi and, and kind of, like, digs up a little bit of the loose soil and puts Mimi there. Before this, Mimi has been... Mimi is the guinea pig, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to be clear. Mimi is not, like, a fifth friend we didn't mention. Not anymore, anyway. <laughs> anyway, before this moment, Mimi has... Mimi's corpse has been stored in the refrigerator, which is freezer. so... Freezer. Freezer. Oh, God. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> Did you know that my parents... I've told you this. Uh, side note, listeners, my parents have had a dead weasel in their freezer for years. So I can't fault Tibby's actions because if you find a dead animal that you would like to have, the best advice I can give you is to put it in your freezer. There you go. Should I explain why they even do it? No. <laughs> it's called a least weasel. It's an endangered species, so no one would taxiderm yet. So now it lives in the freezer. Or doesn't live in the freezer. <laughs> all right. So at the end of the book, all four girls, Bridget, Tibby, Lena, and Carmen, return to Bethesda and gather for a reunion celebration at their special spot, which is the aerobic center where their moms met, called Gilda's. They break in with, like, a bobby pin. And then... It's ha- really impressive. It is really impressive and have like a little kind of ceremony there, which is cute. And uh, they share stories and record their memories of the summer 
on the pants. Like they use needle and thread, presumably, and like puffy paint and stuff. Yeah. Draw little pictures of what happened over the summer. Feels like a. Would you do that if you found a pair of pants that made you look really good? I don't think so. No, definitely not. Like, I mean, I get that the point of this is friendship and not the pants, but it's emphasized that not only do the pants fit them, but they all also make them look tremendous. <laughs> yeah. Come on. And now you have puffy paint on your butt. Yeah, what have you done? So, Anne Brashares is the author, like we said. She was born in 1967 in Alexandria, Virginia. Shout out to Virginia. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> and she grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and went to school in D.C. at Sidwell Friends. And it makes sense because there's a really big DMV influence in the book, by which I do not mean the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Yeah. Bridget talks about going to UVA. They live in Bethesda. They where do they buy the pants? Georgetown. Yeah. Yeah. So Anne Brashares went to Barnard College and. After college, she went on to work as an editor for 17th Street Publications, and while she was working as an editor, she wrote and published her first book, which is, of course, The Sister to the Traveling Pants in 2001, and then she's published four more sequels in the series, and that includes, unfortunately, the final book, which (laughs) we'll maybe get into later if I'm feeling emotionally able to deal with it. She also published a companion book to the Sisterhood series in 2009 called Three Willows, colon, The Sisterhood Grows. But it's just about three random <laughs> girls who attend the same high school as the girls in the Sisterhood series. They might be like tangentially re- related by being like siblings of friends or something, but <laughs> when we were talking about it, Sarah's like, it takes place in the same universe. And I was like, what universe? Like the real world? <laughs> basically. Bethesda, Maryland? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I read it a long time ago, so I really can't speak on it. But I remember thinking, like, this is not nearly as good as The Sisterhood. And in addition to The Sisterhood books, she's also published a few other novels for adults and young adults. She's also won a few awards. She won the Indies Choice Book Award for Children's Lit in 2002, and the Quill Award for Young Teen Slash Adult in 2005. And she currently lives in New York City with her husband and three children. We're going to talk a little bit now about critical reception. After its release, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants was named an American Library Association's Best Book for Young Adults and won a Book Sense Book of the Year award and was named a Publisher's Weekly Flying Start in addition to the Indie's Choice Book Award from 2002 that we mentioned. And so Publisher's Weekly said about the book upon its release that, quote, their bonds combined with a realistic portrayal of teen emotions Tibby is embarrassed by the smock she has to wear to work at Wallman's while Carmen boils with rage when the seamstress fitting her bridesmaid's dress disparages her curvy figure. Make for an outstanding and vivid book that will stay with readers for a long time. Readers will hope that Brashares chronicles the sisterhood for volumes to come. But stops before the last one. (laughs) That's true. The book report also said... That the book is, quote, a page-turning story driven by four beautifully interwoven voices. Brashear's descriptions are so vivid that the reader can see the olive groves in Greece and the starry sky in Baja. About the inspiration for the novel, Anne Brashear's said, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants was born in an unusual way. I was working as an editor at the time, chatting in the office with a colleague and a friend who told me about a summer when she and some girlfriends shared a pair of pants. She told me the pants had sadly been lost in Borneo. 
My mind was immediately filled with all sorts of wonderful possibilities. And then she says, I think pants have unique qualities, especially in a woman's life. Whatever bodily insecurities we have, we seem to take out on our pants. In high school, my friends would have their skinny pants and their fat pants. I like pants that allow women not to judge their bodies. The traveling pants are a kind of pants that always love you. They fit my character's body in a non-restrictive way. Which is makes sense, right? Because... Or if they were sharing a magical t-shirt, it would not. Yeah. I, many of us have shared t-shirts. Yeah. Also, Amber Shares has shared her wedding dress with a lot of women. That so. is so cute. Yeah, that is cute. Talks the talk and walks the walk. So one of my favorite things about this book, little side note about me, I read this book. I've read this book probably at least 10 times in my life. I used to read it every summer when I was a teenager. I just... Every summer? That's so cute. Yeah. Because it's just such a summer book. There's something really comforting about it because the characters, at least to me, really, really felt like real people. And so I felt like I was spending time with people I knew and was familiar with and loved. And so it was a really important book for me as a kid and a young adult. And I think what makes it so special is that there are four different protagonists who are very different but feel like she's able to include all of their voices in one novel. I think most readers can see something of themselves in at least one of the girls. Right. So I wanted to take a few minutes to just talk about each of the girls. In order to appreciate the book, I feel like you have to really understand their different personalities. And so Lena Caligaris is the Greek-American girl who is visiting her grandparents in Greece for the summer. She is described as stunningly beautiful, kind of to the point where she is mistrustful of strangers and especially men and boys because she feels like they only are interested in her because of the way that she looks. She's also an artist and she's a pretty introverted person. One of my favorite descriptions of her happens when she's painting. The slow hypnosis of deep concentration was passing over her. It was her safest feeling, a state she preferred to stay in far longer than most human beings. She was like one of those strange hibernating frogs whose heart didn't beat for a whole winter. She liked it that way. That's a great description. So something that I think is really interesting about this book is so it's told from the um, like a third person omniscient point of view. It's narrated by a third person narrator who has access to all four of the girls thoughts and feelings. And it allows for a lot of direct characterization. So it's like direct characterization as opposed to indirect characterization. So direct characterization is like telling, like Lena is beautiful is direct characterization. And usually in creative writing, they'll tell you to do a mix of direct and indirect characterization with the, which the books certainly do. Mm -hmm. But I find that, I don't know if it's because Anne Brashares is such a good writer or, but I find that the direct characterization feels so true and believable. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you get a lot of direct characterization, it can feel like way too much telling and not enough showing, but I think she does a really wonderful balance in here. For example, this is a little passage about Lena where she's skinny dipping and about to be (laughs) discovered. But before that happens, she's having a great time. Ah, Lena said as she waited in. It was funny to hear her voice aloud. Her thoughts and perceptions usually existed so deep inside her, they rarely made it to her surface without deliberate effort. Even when she saw something genuinely funny on television, she never laughed out loud when she was alone. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we wouldn't have that 
without this narration. And then as like a major contrast to Lena, we get Bridget, who is very gregarious. Yes, outgoing, knows what she wants, ambitious, flirtatious, and is described by her therapist uh, after the death of her mother as single-minded to the point of recklessness, which I love. Yeah, I've always, that description of her has always stuck in my brain. Mm -hmm. So one of the quotes I really like that sums up Bridget's character pretty well takes place during a soccer game. She's about to go on the field and her coach has warned her about hogging the ball, (laughs) given that this is just a scrimmage. Bridget needed a single focus. She had too much energy, she knew, and a fair amount of raw, undisciplined talent. At almost every point in her life, she needed one simple, unified goal to keep her going forward fast. Otherwise, there was a possibility of going backward, where she did not want to go. And so we also know about Bridget is that her mother suffered from depression and died by suicide when Bridget was a kid. And we can kind of see Bridget's relentless energy and forward-looking nature as a desire to not have to think about or spend time with or dwell in the parts of her life that have been really tragic. It's definitely a means of distraction. Yeah. She's like a shark. She can't stop swimming or she'll die. Yeah. And also Carmen is a really interesting character. She seems to think that her greatest flaw is her hot temper She talks a lot in the book about bad Carmen and good Carmen. And in her brain, there's all these things that she wants good Carmen to do, like be kind to Lydia or her step, her step siblings. But then it's always seems to be bad Carmen or irrational Carmen who actually opens up her mouth to speak. And so that dichotomy is pretty interesting. But also Carmen is framed as kind of the most introspective character And she writes the prologue and the epilogue in her voice. And so that's the only part of the book that's told in first person, which is really fun because you get to see her point of view. So when talking about the book, Anne Brashear said, Carmen struck me as the person who was most conscious, who recognized the importance of the girl's friendship. She didn't just live it. She knew it inside and out. I think she's the most introspective of the four. I think that relationships do change over time. And that's another reason why Carmen has the role she does. She has an awareness that the relationship is fragile and that so many other priorities, like boyfriends or distance, can get in the way. People's lives inevitably go in different directions as they get older, when they stop having so much in common. They have to work to not let it go. And that's, I think, a really wonderful description of her. At one point, I think um, Carmen describes herself as the one who cares the most. Mm-hmm which I think is a really lovely description. It's also pretty special because Carmen is one of the few who, one of, I think the only one who can't really be boiled down into two words Mm -hmm. or one, you know, Bridget is the athlete. Lena is the artist, the, the quiet artist. Bridget is the outgoing athlete. Tibby is the rebellious filmmaker. And then Carmen is kind of the heart of the group. Mm-hmm. But she also really likes math. Yes, she's really good at math, which can't relate, but good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Bracheris has also said about Lena, quote, I based Lena's stories on the Greek myth of Artemis, the proud boy-hating goddess of the hunt who, when spotted bathing by a suitor, turns the poor guy into a stag. I wanted my Lena to be less pleased with herself, though, and for her, her suitor to be more formidable. 
which I just think is funny. I hadn't made that connection, but it seems so I obvious. Know, I hadn't either. <laughs> then he gets killed by his own dogs. Yeah, that does not happen to Costa. <laughs> and then Tippy is the last character that we haven't talked about. So Tibby is, like Terry said, kind of rebellious, kind of cynical. She's the punk one of the group. Her mom, when she was having her, was quite young. She was 19 and was described as, like, the young radical. Mm-hmm. She and Tibby's father had lived in, like, a tiny apartment. He'd worked for a socialist newspaper. They'd lived in a trailer on uh, a couple acres, and her dad had been an organic farmer, and her mom made sculptures of feet. And she says, one whole spring we lived in a tent in Portugal. But right now, they are in the middle of the rat race. They're living in the suburbs in Bethesda. And her father is like a corporate lawyer, I think. Her mom has had two more kids. And Tibby feels very resentful. Yeah. Of the life they lead. She, Tibby... As Bailey puts it, it was kind of like their experiment they had when they were young. And now that they've grown up, they want to have a family for real. And Tibby feels kind of like actually Carmen does a bit where she's kind of like this sullen outsider. Mm-hmm. who's kind of mucking up the family portrait. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that. I want to live on an organic farm and make sculptures of feet. I know. Why would anyone leave a life like that besides money? Um... One of the great places where we get to hear their voices also is in the letters that they write each other. And I love the letters because we get to see kind of their handwriting through the fonts. And of course, they're like perfect mirrors of their character. Lena writes these long, thoughtful letters in this (laughs) really pretty, like kind of loopy script. Bridget's letters are short and they kind of bounce back and forth between thoughts and her handwriting is very thick and bold and Carmen's is a little bit less neat but still shares a lot of information and feelings and then Tibby's is chicken scratch (laughs) yeah which I love because it looks exactly like my handwriting and you know includes healthy doses of sarcasm and cynicism yeah one of my favorite um, letters where you can really get a sense for Bridget's personality is when she writes one to Tibby And it's also very Bridget because there's no useful information in it. Yeah. Like, it's just musings. So she says, Tibby, I love outdoor showers. I love looking at the sky. I've even started going to the bathroom outside rather than close myself up in one of the sick outhouses. I'm a feral creature. Is that the word? You would hate all this crunchiness, Tib, but it is perfect for me. The thought of a shower under a ceiling makes me claustrophobic. Do you think anyone would notice if I started going to the bathroom in the backyard? Ha, just kidding. I think I wasn't made for houses. Love, contemplative bee. Aww. Yep. That's what she's like. There's a lot of really wonderful moments in this book, but we did want to share just a few of some of our favorite excerpts. I love the rules that they come up with. So on the night before they leave to go their separate ways, they make a list of rules for how they're going to share the pants. And I think there are 10 rules in all. And they agree. They agree to never wash the pants, which I think is an an interesting take, but they are afraid of washing the magic out of the pants. And who knows? Maybe that's how they work. They also say, you must never double cuff the pants. It's tacky. There'll never be a time when this will not be tacky. You're also not allowed to wear the pants with a tucked in shirt and belt, which I think is fair since these pants are probably low rise jeans. 
but we are living in a different time period and I almost exclusively wear tucked in shirts with belts and I don't need to hear it. So <laughs> jot that down. And then my favorite one, remember pants equal love. Love your pals, love yourself. Yes. You're also not allowed to pick your nose while wearing the pants. Mm, yes, that's right. But you can kind of scratch your nose while really kind of picking. Which I think is what like most people do anyway. But I guess like even in private, you're not allowed to just <laughs> dig up in there. <laughs> and boys are not allowed to take the pants off of you, although you may remove the pants yourself in the presence of a boy. And <laughs> Lena does, <laughs> unwittingly. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. One of the other things about this book that is really wonderful is the imagery and the figurative language and the details. So especially there's two locations that are described as being just absolutely gorgeous, and that's Baja, California, which is in Mexico, which is confusing. (laughs) But that's where Bridget is. And then also in Greece, which is where Lena is. And so both of those locations are just stunning. My favorite one was her description of Lena's description of seeing her grandparents house for the first time. The first thing was the front door. It was painted the most brilliant egg yolk over easy shade of yellow. Surrounding it, the house front was painted the brightest possible blue. Who could even imagine such a blue? Lena tipped her face upward to the cloudless afternoon sky. Oh. (laughs) And then my favorite part, in Bethesda, if you painted your house those colors, they'd call you a drug addict. Your neighbors would sue you. They'd arrive with sprayers at nightfall and repaint it beige. Here was color bursting out everywhere against the whitewashed walls. That made me want a blue house with a yellow door so desperately. I mean, even just the yellow door. (sighs) I also love this description, too. This is also of Greece. The sunset was too beautiful. It almost made Lena feel panicked because she couldn't save it. The blobs of paint on her palette, usually inspiring, looked hopelessly drab. The sunset burned with a billion watts of light. There was no light in her paint. She put her palette and her carefully prepared panel on top of the wardrobe so she didn't have to look at them. She perched on her windowsill, gazing at the lurid sun soaking into the caldera, trying to appreciate it even though she couldn't have it. Why did she always feel she had to do something in the face of beauty? Oh, I love Lena. Me too. Lena is also responsible. (laughs) One of my favorite lines during the arguments between the two grandfathers. Who punches first? Is it her grandfather or Kostos's? I think it's her grandfather. Yeah, so her grandfather swings mm-hmm. <laughs> and then gets punched back and gets some blood on the jeans. And Lena's a little stressed because she's she's not supposed to watch them. She dabs a little bit at them. But she worries, who wanted the blood of a cranky old Greek man on their magic pants? <laughs> Probably Tibby. Doesn't that seem like something Tibby would like? like? Yeah. You get a sense of the girls' personalities based on what they notice. Lena is looking around a lot, and then there's like lots of description of the physical environment. Tibby is paying a lot of attention to the people around her, which I think, you know, can give you the impression that she's self-conscious because she's always mm-hmm. aware of who's there and who's looking at her. Bridget is like her observations have to do with motion a lot like she's always yeah. on the go and wants to and it's like swimming or running or biking or whatever and Carmen's mostly thinking about herself honestly <laughs> and her feelings yeah she's her thinking feelings. a lot about her feelings and her actions mm-hmm. and she is the introspective one yeah so it makes a lot of sense 
But we get the most physical description with Lena, which makes sense, right? She's a painter. This is one of my favorite moments. It comes towards the end of the book. She says, Even after the late hour at which the party ended, Lena couldn't sleep. She sat by her window watching the moon. She waited for breezes to feather the edges of the sea moon. She imagined all the happy inhabitants of Oya falling into a deep, drunken sleep. But as she craned a little out the window, she recognized another pair of elbows in the far window of the second floor. They were Boppy's, Boppy is her grandfather, Boppy's wrinkly elbows. He was sitting at his window, staring at the moons, just like she was. She smiled both inside and out. She learned one thing in Santorini. She wasn't like either of her parents or her sister, but she was just like her Boppy, proud, silent, fearful. Yeah, so um, there's also some wonderful descriptions of Baja from Bridget's storyline. There's one where they're coming out at night, sneaking out at night, Bridget and some friends, to follow Eric. And she says, four of them flew along the Baja Highway, whizzing past snail-like RVs. Bridget kept bumping against Diana's back tire, making her scream. The placid bay was to their left, and the hills were to their right, and the full moon sat on Bridget's shoulder. Yeah, I love the full moon sitting on Bridget's shoulder. One of my other favorite descriptions is kind of early in the book, Bridget is playfully swimming with Eric in the ocean. It goes, Bridget raised her arms in the air for no reason. She jumped up and down in the water, unable to contain her energy. This is the best place in the world. He laughed again, his serious face gone. She dove under the surface and plummeted to the sandy bottom. Slowly, she passed his feet. Without thinking, she reached out her hand and touched his ankle with her finger, light as a trigger fish. Isn't that such like a 15-year-old girl thing to do to your uh, crush? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Light as a trigger fish. <laughs> there are some other really great descriptions of Bridget wanting Eric, which is, again, you know, when we talk about the things where there's the most imagery, one of the things for Bridget is like what she wants and how she feels about it. And there's a scene where she sneaks into Eric's cabin at night and approaches him and says, the wind blew her hair forward. The ends grazed his chest. She wished there were nerve endings in hair. She was wearing only a white t-shirt skimming the bottom of her underwear. It was awfully hard not to touch him. And another part where they're on the beach together at night. And I think this is after that they've had sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's telling her, like, this is not the right time. You scare me (laughs) with how attracted I am to you. Someday you'll be a great soccer star. Hit me up then. And she watches him go, and she says she wanted his profession of feelings to do the trick. She really did. She knew he wanted that, too. Whether he spoke the truth or not, he thought he could make her feel better, and he really, really wanted to. But it wasn't what she needed. Her need was as big as the stars, and he was down there on the beach, so quiet she could hardly hear him. It's really interesting because you get the sense that her kind of the depressive episode begins with a description of her that almost to me sounds a bit like disassociation, perhaps. She says, long after she left Eric, she lay in her sleeping bag. She shivered. Her eyes were full. They dripped from sadness or strangeness or love. They were the kind of tears that came when she was just too full. She needed to make a little room. She stared at the sky. It was bigger tonight. Tonight, her thoughts roamed out into it, and like Diana had said, they didn't find anything to bounce off. They just went and went until nothing felt real. Not even the thoughts. Not even thinking itself. She had clung to him, wanting him, unsure, brazen, and afraid. There was a storm in her body, and when the storm got too strong, she got out. 
She floated up to the palm fronds. She'd done it before. She let the ship go down without its captain. The intimacy between them had been unfathomable. It now stayed there with her, wobbly, waiting to be taken care of. She didn't know how to do that. Bridget pulled her thoughts back in, coiling them like a kite string. Carefully, she rolled her sleeping bag under her arm and crept back into the cabin. She lay down, her back flat on the bed. Tonight, she would let her thoughts stray no farther than the weathered planks. Hmm. And that shift to inside is like a big emotional, mental shift for her because she spent the entire book up until this point never wanting to be inside. And then she kind of has this experience where all of her enthusiasm and energy catches up to her and she feels very alone yeah she has trouble talking about it at one point she says she hadn't imagined her encounter with eric would be personal she thought it would be a jaunt an adventure to brag to her friends about she expected to feel powerful in the end she didn't she felt like she'd scrubbed her heart with sos pads so carmen is probably one of my favorite storylines to follow in the whole book i love how thoughtful she is Mm -hmm. about herself and her own feelings and I think it makes it really enjoyable to read. One of my favorite scenes of hers is after she's come back to the house expecting to find everybody out looking for her, expecting to find them worried and in a panic and instead it says when she made her way to the big picture window that framed the dining room table she froze. She stopped breathing. The anger was growing again. It grew up into her throat where she could taste it, coppery like blood in the back of her mouth. It grew down into her stomach where it knotted her intestines. It made her arms stiffen and her shoulders locked. It pushed against her ribs until she felt they would snap like sticks. Her father wasn't looking for her. He wasn't calling the police. He was sitting at the dining room table with piles of roast chicken, rice, and carrots on his plate. And then there's some short description of how she sees the family sitting there looking perfect. She raced down the side steps and picked up two rocks, small and easy to grab. Motions were no longer connected to thoughts, but she must have climbed back up those steps and cocked her arm. The first rock bounced off the window frame. The second one must have shot right through the window because she heard the glass shatter and she saw it sail past the back of Paul's head and smack the far wall before it came to sit on the floor at her father's feet. She stayed long enough for her father to look up and see her through the jagged hole in the window and know that it was her and that he saw her and that she saw him and that they both knew. And then she ran. Ah, I love it. As someone who is angry (laughs) a lot. That's such a good description of it. I mean, it feels just like that. The shoulders lock and the, the nodding and the, ooh, and it rises up in your throat. And you can tell that this is so particularly painful for Carmen because normally she is so outspoken, but she has this very fragile relationship with her father that, as Sarah said, like is so precious and that she clearly doesn't feel super secure about and is therefore like always afraid of jeopardizing. So while she's furious with her new stepmother and she's furious with the kids, she can't admit how angry she is with her father. So she has this really great cathartic moment when she calls him after mailing the envelope of money to fix the window. <laughs> but I, before I get to that, I love the various letters that she starts writing. She's obviously unsure of how to approach this and she starts a series of letters like, Dad, please accept this money. Dear Al, I can't begin to explain my actions. Dear Dad and Lydia. (laughs) And then my favorite one, when her temper is clearly shot. Dear Dad's new family, I hope you'll all be very happy being blonde together. May people speak only in inside voices for the rest of your lives. P.S. Lydia, your wedding dress makes your arms look fat. (laughs) May people speak only in inside voices for the rest of your (laughs) lives. 
Uh, I love Carmen. She's terrific. Yeah. But then she has that serious conversation that she so desperately needs to have with her father towards the end of the book. She calls him and she says that she's sorry she broke the window. She wants to see if he got the money. Well, first she says, I'm disappointed in you. I thought we'd be spending the summer together. You really should have warned me. And it says, Carmen, he says, I'm sorry. I wish I'd warned you. That was my mistake. I really am sorry. He finished with a note of finality. He was closing it off again, cauterizing the wound before there could be any more bleeding. She wasn't cooperating. I'm not finished, she declared. He was silent. She gave herself a few moments to steady her voice. You found yourself a new family and I don't really fit into it. Her voice came out squeaky and bare. You got yourself this new family with these new kids, but, but what about me? Now she was completely off the road and driving fast. Emotions she hadn't even realized she felt were flying past. What's the matter with me and mom? Her voice cracked painfully. Tears were falling now. She didn't even care if he was listening anymore. She had to keep talking. Why wasn't your old family good enough? Why did you move away? Why did you promise me we'd be closer than ever? She broke off so she could try to catch her breath. Why did you say we were, even though it wasn't true? She was flat out sobbing now. Her words rose and fell on waves of crying. She wondered if he could even understand what she was saying. Why does Paul visit his drunk father every month and you visit me two or three times a year? I didn't do anything wrong, did I? And then uh, she just cries. It's such great dialogue. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie version, too. Mm -hmm. America Ferrero knocks it out of the park. Yeah, it's like, if you haven't seen that scene, definitely Google it, because she delivers that dialogue basically almost verbatim from the book. Yeah. And it's just incredible. I love that scene because it could so easily, like, stop where it does when she says, why didn't you tell me that you were getting married? Like, that was such a nasty shock. I came down there and, like this just happened out of left field. And he's like, I am sorry. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then tries to stop it there. And I love, because in theory, it could have stopped it there. Mm -hmm. You know, it could have said like, yeah, that was a lousy thing you did. You shouldn't have done that. He's sorry. And then the book continues. But that's not what the problem is. The problem is that he's been not a great father for this time. And she hasn't been able to say it because this relationship has been so important to her, but by its nature, feels fragile. Her mother says to her, in the movie they switch it to Tibby, but I think it's important that it's her mother in the book because she's mad at Tibby when she comes back because Tibby isn't like giving her the validation she thinks she deserves. She's frustrated with her mom and she asks her mom, like, why is it so hard for me to admit that I'm mad at dad? And her mom's like, do you think it's easier for you to be mad at people you trust because you know that they'll always love you? Like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel so heartbroken for Carmen. It who is. has blamed herself for so much of this as though it's her fault that she feels angry and as if she's bad Carmen because she is forced to express her frustration in ways that are not direct because her father is not paying any attention to them mm -hmm. you know and because he has not done the work to make this relationship feel stable and secure and loving enough for her that she can feel like this and it's his fault ah it's so annoying i know all right so the last excerpts that we wanted to share are from tibby's storyline so tibby has this really intense short friendship with bailey who dies at the end of the book from leukemia and some of the most poignant moments of the book i think are, are related to that relationship so Tibby kind of falls into this, I don't know if it's like a depression. Yeah, it's hard to 
she's just sort of <laughs> frozen. <laughs> yeah. She's unwilling to face either of these two deaths, that of her guinea pig, uh, or the more obvious main one, Bailey's passing, which she knows is soon. And so Tibby is in her bedroom kind of trying to hide from these phone calls that are coming from the hospital from Bailey and Bailey's mother asking Tibby to please come visit Bailey in the hospital and Tibby is really distressed. And one of my favorite lines in the whole book comes from this moment. She says, Tibby shivered under the covers. She focused on the commercial about erectile dysfunction. Not that line. (laughs) Probably shouldn't have started with that sentence, but we'll leave it in. Um... She wanted to go to sleep. This is my favorite line. She thought of Mimi downstairs freezing in her little box and her up here freezing in her big one. Because her parents leave the AC on really, really, really cold. She's just, it's its very sad too because it's like, Tibby's clearly struggling and no one in her house seems to care or notice. I know. You know she's like not eating meals. She's not going to work. Yeah. And no one really has enough time to care. And she can sort of count on... She's got two very young siblings, a baby and a toddler. So throughout the entire book, we've, like Sarah said, we've gotten a sense that she feels like she's on the outside watching her parents' intended, preferred family unfold. And I think the... I believe it's the last interaction that Tibby has with Bailey before she dies. Tibby is lying in Bailey's hospital bed with her, and Bailey is playing this little like a Game Boy toy, basically, with this Dragon Slayer game that has become kind of an important point of their friendship. Bailey is falling asleep, but she hands it over to Tibby and says, keep playing. Tibby keeps playing. And then within a few days, Bailey has died, and there's a funeral. And when Tibby goes back to the cemetery at night to bury Mimi with Bailey, it says a big part of her wanted to just stay there with them. She wanted to curl up into the smallest, simplest possible existence and let the world rush along without her. She lay down, she curled up, and then she changed her mind. She was alive and they were dead. She had to try to make her life big, as big as she could. She promised Bailey she would keep playing. Oh, man. What a summer. Yeah. So Bailey's an interesting character. Very much, like, wise beyond her years. We'll get into that more later. Because there is some some very valid criticism about it. Yeah. But she has a really profound moment where she's talking about her fears. Ask me anything, Bailey Challenge. What are you scared of? The question got out of Tibby's mouth before she meant to ask it. Bailey thought, I'm afraid of time, she answered. She was brave, unflinching in the big cyclops eye of the camera. Tibby is recording. There was nothing prissy or self-conscious about Bailey. I mean, I'm afraid of not having enough time, she clarified. Not enough time to understand people, how they really are, or to be understood myself. I'm afraid of the quick judgments and mistakes that everybody makes. You can't fix them without time. I'm afraid of seeing snapshots instead of movies. Which is so fitting for somebody to say to Tibby because Tibby is kind of infamous for not really under not making that much of an effort to understand people as they are she's very quick to judge and Bailey says I'm afraid of the quick judgments and mistakes that everybody makes and I think it's just a really good fit for Tibby's character because Tibby has been slowly learning this summer how to (laughs) how to stop seeing the people around her as one-dimensional losers and now she has this relationship with Bailey and she's seeing her and the people around her in a different light. Yeah. 
That also gets back to a point that came up. So when Anne Brichard's in interviews has talked about the inspiration for the characters, she said, The story of Tibby and Bailey I based on the great, great movie It's a Wonderful Life. Bailey started out more like an angel than a person. I imagined her as an angel who revealed the cynical little prejudices and presumptions that I remember finding so seductive when I was 15. Uh, which is interesting, too, because there is one point at the book while Bailey is dying where she's described as so pale, it's like her face is almost like an angel, which I actually really disliked that description. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it felt very obvious, bordering on cliche, mm-hmm. and also just inaccurate because that's not what a dying, like a dying person doesn't look angelic. Yeah. They look they look like a dying person. Yeah. So this can move into our next segment. Your fave is problematic. This is actually something that I didn't notice when I was reading the book as a kid or I wasn't aware of it. And then I was rereading it and I was like, oh, this book definitely plays into some tropes about like chronically ill and disabled people that are unhelpful and problematic. So Bailey does have some, I mean, I don't want to criticize her too much because I do think in some ways she's a really lovely character and I appreciate that she's not just like sweet all the time, that mm-hmm. she challenges people. She calls to be an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Quite a few times. But anyway, despite that, you definitely do get some Tiny Tim vibes off of (laughs) Bailey from time to time. Basically, the idea of this, like, wise disabled kid whose dying wish (laughs) is to give a healthy person valuable life lessons. Yep. (laughs) Keep playing. Yeah. And I love that line, but yeah. So, and then I was doing some reading about this because I was like, I feel like I can't be the only person who feels a little bit uncomfortable with the portrayal of Bailey. And so there has been some writing about it online as well. There is, or was a blog, it's no longer operational, but it's still being, pub- it's still published online. It's no longer being added to called FWD slash forward and FWD stands for feminist with disabilities. And this post is by someone named Ouyang Dan who loved the sister of the Charling Pants, but did have an issue with the portrayal of Bailey. They write, I must ask, why do we always read of the story of Cancer Girl from the perspective of the healthy and able-bodied outsider? I've read so many stories. My sister's keeper comes to mind, and although she doesn't die, I know I've read others where the kid with cancer is meant to teach a lesson from outside the perspective. And I've yet to find one that tells Bailey's story. Bailey is brave and good and wonderful, and she has much to teach us. But does she not ever depart the world with any wisdom of her own? Is she only here to impart and never receive? I hate that the Baileys of YA are only ever vehicles and never the main character. I hate that I have to read Bailey's story from someone else's eyes. It reminds me that the disabled and chronically ill are to be talked about, but not to. Our stories and lives are teaching tools, but not to be lived or experienced. Which is a really fair point. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to me that Anne Brashears seem to be very self-aware of the fact that, like, this character is here as almost like an angelic force to teach Tibby lessons and mm-hmm. to have not... Yeah, I mean, with the whole thing about comparing it to It's a Wonderful Life. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also true that, like... Most able-bodied people don't have to think about this and have, like she said, tons of media reinforcing this idea. So... It's disappointing, but it's not necessarily surprising that there's a character like this. Yeah. Yeah, that's not it. We love this book, but uh, of course we have to, we have to talk about the other things. There's um, a fair, I don't want to say there's a lot, but there are little underlying hints of 
would you say fat phobia throughout the book? I think there is some some great stuff about Carmen's perception of her own body, which she generally likes, but is sort of worried about how other people will perceive it. But one of the rules is you're not allowed to call yourself fat while wearing the pants. You know, you're not allowed to think I am fat, implying, of course, that there is a problem with being fat. And then there are also some stereotypes that we're going to get into, but I think probably the main one is the sort of racial stereotype about Carmen's temper, which I love <laughs> because I love that Carmen is, you know, frustrated and emotional, but does definitely play into the stereotype of the like fiery Latina and we have to talk about it. So in the article, Who Wears the Pants? The Multicultural Politics of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants by Kate McInnelly, which was published in Children's Literature of Education in 2008. She talks a bit about the concept of sisterhood and how it implies and sort of focuses on the sameness between the girls and sort of uses Carmen and Lena's ethnicities to add color to the narrative, but it's more of a backdrop for the main idea and the main idea is more standard whiteness. She says, the multicultural agenda of the book is thus, in Stanley Fish's terms, boutique, using cultural difference to add some color to the narrative and as a backdrop for the primary, if covert, story about the character's eventual acceptance of the importance and value of men in their lives. Carmen, the hot-headed Latina, Lena, the Greek goddess, Bridget, the precocious or even promiscuous character, and Tibby, the girl who finally discovers her nurturing side, all serve to promote a homogenous culture where a gendered acceptance of oneself is gained through sisters accepting their position within patriarchy. Yeah. I think there's also, like the article mentions, the importance of the magical pants is that they create sameness through the fact that they fit all the four girls despite the very different body types. And... She argues that this establishes a, quote, essentialized character of femininity, which is ascribed to all the girls. You know, thinking of the time that this book was published, you know, 2001, it kind of fits with some of the multicultural politics of that era of like the mm -hmm. I don't see color, that those differences are there, but they don't really they don't matter. They don't define us. They don't. Yeah, that we can kind of move beyond them, that there's something more important than them. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that is definitely something. a fair critique of the novel. And then this one I think is a little bit more complicated because I don't want to say that it like glamorizes this relationship, but it is gross. <laughs> And in later books, I think they do get together, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, Bridget is at this soccer camp where she falls in love with 19-year-old Eric. So the idea is that, like, she seduces him, you know, that he keeps saying, like, oh, we can't do this, you know? You can't keep chasing after me. Like, I won't... He says at one point, like, I won't be strong enough to say no or something. But, of course, the reality is that, like, he is a coach. Like, he's a, a leader in this camp environment. And he's also 19 years old. And she's 15. He is not the one who who gets to put it on her to control herself so that he doesn't fall prey to her, her wily ways. That's not on the 15-year-old. No. And, and I do think that he knows that at the end because he does, at the, in their last conversation, he says, like, this was my fault. He's like, yeah, I it's true. He's like, I shouldn't have done that. And basically he's like, you're amazing, but the age difference is a problem. I mean, have you ever seen a 15-year-old? And Have you ever seen a 19-year-old? Yeah, there's a big mm. difference. <laughs> yeah. So now time for our next segment. The book was better. So there was a movie made of this book that came out in 
2005. Yes, produced by Warner Brothers. It starred America Ferreira as Carmen, Alexis Bledel as Lena, Amber Tamblyn as Tibby, and Blake Lively as Bridget. And it... I would say is a fine movie. Yeah. We both rewatched it a few nights ago. And yeah, it's definitely enjoyable. There are some things about some of the changes in casting that I think would have probably been better left to the original source material. They almost completely changed Lena's storyline. And we think that that's because of the casting. And the problem is if you cast (laughs) Blake Lively and America Ferreira in anything, and they're not supposed to be the beauties of the group, then you're going to need to cast <laughs> mm-hmm. a truly otherworldly person. And Alexis Bledel is stunning, but she doesn't really look anything like how Lena is described, short of having dark hair. She doesn't look Greek. And watching the movie, you don't really get the sense that it would be fair for her to say, like, everybody only talks to me because I am completely stunning. Yeah, so Lena's character in the book, she has basically this whole complex about her appearance because she feels she doesn't trust people because she feels like they're drawn to her for that, but then don't really value her as a person. But that does that plotline doesn't really make sense with Alexis Bledel because she's not shockingly beautiful in the way yeah. that Lena is described as being like truly shockingly beautiful. And um more beautiful than Blake Lively. <laughs> right. And also so much of Lena's storyline, so much of her conflict is interior. It's the way mm-hmm. that she, she doesn't really talk much at all in the book. It's the way that she thinks about herself and the way she thinks about Kostas and the way she thinks about the people around her and what they're thinking about her. And that's really hard to portray in a movie. And so they basically scrap the entire storyline from the original book mm-hmm. and they keep Costas, but instead of him being a close family friend that everyone wants her to get together with and that she's resisting, it's like a Romeo and Juliet situation where her family and his family hate each other, and so they start dating in secret. It still reflects Lena's character because she has to be brave in Mm -hmm. a way that's uncharacteristic of her, but the storyline is a lot more cliche, Yeah, but much more Hollywood, so I can see why they did it. It's also a bummer, actually, because Lena is not really... She doesn't paint in the movie. She does she sketch. Doesn't. She draws, but her drawings... Her drawings are not good. Some Her drawings of buildings are quite good. Yeah. They're not amazing, though, but they yeah. are quite good. But regrettably, she also draws Costas a few times, and she should not draw people. Yeah. I'm going to be very blunt. She does this amazing one of Costas that her grandmother finds and is distressed by for the wrong reasons she's distressed because lena clearly has strong feelings for this boy when the real flaw is that what makes the picture so horrifying is not that it's of a family rival who everyone hates it's his giant giant pepperoni nipples (laughs) they are so big they're so prominent she didn't have to do that his face is in it you know, but it's so clear that <laughs> so much effort. The eye is immediately drawn. Yeah. Like you're looking right at them and they're looking at you and both of you feel awful. <laughs> you and the nipples. Yeah, and his, her grandmother is like, what is this? And I was like, yeah, what is that? Yeah, it's awful. I warned Terry. And she was like, all right, heads up, coming up, there's about to be a graphic sketch of some male nipples. So. Oh, and it's not man. Even, like, it's not, it's supposed to be just like a a portrait of him. It's not like... Oh, it's not sexual. No. It's, not, or it's not meant to be. It's just that he's shirtless and... Oh, 
they, I mean, that alone could have gotten the movie in NC-17. <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway, I wish she'd painted. Um, <laughs> her paintings are beautifully described in the book, but in the movie, yeah, sketches of buildings and then some uh, softcore porn. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie has a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty good, I would say, as far yeah. as the movies that we've been reviewing have and, gone. Yeah, and especially for a movie that, especially given that it came out in 2005, was marketed entirely to teenage girls. Yeah. Or not a very respected demographic. Yes. It's also notable that this is kind of like Blake Lively's debut. It is. Yeah, she hadn't been. I believe this is her first movie. And I remember reading that she came into the audition with basically no resume. Like, she was completely green. And they were wow. Like, they are like, all right, let's get her in and get her out. Like, there's, she's obviously... And then she did it, and they're like, well, that's Bridget. Yeah, because, I mean, Blake Lively is Bridget. Yeah. She had to be cast as Bridget, which meant that, they ha- meant that they had to find someone more beautiful than her. And good luck. Yeah. <laughs> but, again, America Ferreira could have only been Carmen. Yeah, that's a... That- she does it beautifully. She is Carmen. And uh, Tibby's actress is also terrific. Yeah. Amber Tamblyn. And Alexis Spliddell does a great job. She really does. It's just that she's not quite Lena. Yeah. Also, Alexis Waddell, if by any chance you listen to this, I'm so sorry. I love you. You're so good on The Handmaid's Tale. Call me. <laughs> I, I do think that Alexis Waddell does a good job capturing Lena's awkwardness and quietness and shyness. Definitely, yes. Uh, one of my <laughs> favorite reviews, though, is... Shondaland mentioned its review of the film that Bridget's white underwear, which we see in the uh, trying on the pants scene at the beginning of the film, was, quote, iconic, (laughs) which I completely agree with. There's a scene, the pants are not bought already in the movie. They all try them on in the store and then uh, agree to buy them. But they're trying them on in the fitting room, and then when they tell Bridget to try them on, she just takes off her pants in the middle of the scene, sorry, in the middle of the store, which nobody comments on. We all just sort of sat there like silently for a moment. Then we were like, wait, are they in a fitting room? And then we were like, well, I guess that's Bridget. And then Carmen also takes off her pants in the middle of the store. But uh, yeah, sure, they are iconic. And now she's married to Ryan Reynolds. So if that's all it takes, then I would be happy to take off my pants in the middle of the store. (laughs) Gladly. All right, shall we do reviews? Yeah. Moving into our next segment. My favorite! And now a word from us kids. Subtitle, and also one killjoy adult. (laughs) I'm assuming this is an adult. Uh, I don't know who else could be this miserable. Regrettably, a lot of these reviews are not pulled from my favorite website, Togo Books. There were only five reviews on there. And while they were great, and I love hearing from them, none of them were particularly thrilling. I did like S. Sagittarius's review, though who said, this book is a wonderful look into friendship and the ties of the four friends that share the traveling pants. It is sad, beautiful, tragic. Taylor Swift's song depicts it perfectly. (laughs) I picked it up as a light read, but soon realized it was so, so much more than that. I love that. We got a Swifty. Yeah. For those of you who are not Swifties, Taylor Swift has a song called Sad, Beautiful, Tragic, which is obviously being referenced in this. And really isn't much like the sister of the child. No, completely disagree. That was a little bit of a stretch, if I'm being honest. But, you know, any excuse to bring up Taylor Swift in conversation, I get it. Me too. <laughs> Shall we? Yeah, let's, let's read the annoying one and get it over with. Okay. So this is from Brienne. 
who I'm going to title Brienne the Bitter. She wrote a really long comment. We can't possibly read all of it, but like, I need you guys to know exactly how much time she dedicated to this book. She says, this is beginning to feel a little too familiar, but here's yet another disappointment from my YA lit class. So I, I'm guessing that this is an adult, like, who's maybe taking, like, teaching, like, an education program or something. Or even maybe an English class. Yeah. Yeah. But she says, first, I should state that I have never liked the whole, quote, girl power thing. I guess I always felt intelligent slash empowered enough as a teenager to not have to rely on books like this to show me how fantastic it is to be female. Also, generally speaking, I find large groups of girls terrifying, especially at the high school age. So lots of pre-existing strikes against this book. I'm sorry, how intelligent and, quote, empowered are you if you are afraid of high school girls? No, obviously you could have used some books like this if you are an adult now who lives in fear of teenage girls. Also, the book is not cloyingly girl power by no, any means. No, it isn't. They're just friends. Do you not have friends? But that, like, ties into something so much bigger and more problematic about women's lives yeah. in writing, where it can never, it's always a statement. Everything women do has to be seen as, I don't know, some kind of playing at something. When these girls are literally just friends, yeah. and Brienne, who obviously is unpacking a lot of internalized misogyny on goodreads.com, resents them for it. And then, you know, again, five sentences later, admits to being afraid of high school age girls, which is 100% your fault. Are people just not supposed to write about high school age girls because you don't like them? Yeah. Then, of course, she says, as for the story itself, blah complains about how her friends in high school were the exact same as her. Oh, no, yeah, you have to read that, because that's ridiculous. Oh, okay. Yeah, complaint. complaint the first. I dislike the formula... Formulatic? I guess she thinks that's a word. Okay, she's going for formulaic, but... Formulatic, four girls with four neat, distinctive personalities thing. I mean, come on, all my friends in high school were pretty much the exact same as me, but with different colors of hair and varying degrees of niceness. And that's bullshit, because anytime people hang out, they always, always, always put themselves into sort of different archetypes. Like, I mean, there are studies on this about siblings. It's yeah, maybe you were just friends with a bunch of boring people. When I read that part of it, I was like, what are you talking about? That's such a weird thing to, like, basically your complaint is, I don't like that the characters were different from each other. Exactly. Well, what, you wanted them to all be the same character? I guess. Yeah, she was unconvinced by every single one of the characters. She liked Lena the best. But she, she says, I didn't buy the whole, I don't want people to like me because I'm pretty thing. Realistically, most pretty teenagers seem fairly psyched by their good fortune and run with it. Maybe if she was in her 20s, still a maybe, but at 15, then you know if they'd written Lena, yeah. as, then she would consider her very shallow and Right, um, also it's like, yeah, maybe most teenagers would be psyched with that, but Lena's different and that's notable. Exactly. Okay, this is the part that I disliked the most. Similarly, the one who played soccer and her aggressive hitting on the coach scenario. First of all, the one who played soccer has a name and it's Bridget. Bridget. It's not that hard. Uh, and her aggressive hitting on the coach scenario. Maybe it was realistic, but if it is, I didn't grow up with girls like that. We know you grew up with friends who were all just like you with varying degrees of niceness. I hope they were nicer than you. I hope you're not the nicest of your friend group. So yeah, she says, I didn't grow up with girls like that. It all seemed a little contrived to me. Even at 15, we all had a pretty good handle on the word skank, and the lack of it being thrown around by anyone made this seem less real world. First of all, we're in Bridget's world. Yeah. We're not, we're not in Diane's head or any of her other friends. Yeah. And also, 
I'm starting to understand why you were afraid of high school girls, because I don't know what the fuck kind of high school you went to. But, like, I was not the least bit surprised that her friends, you know, and, and they were a little bit, like, Bridget, like, yeah. oh, you're going to get yourself in trouble, you know? But, like, they think he's cute, too. Yeah. And they enjoy watching her boldness. Like, it's... it's exactly. Yeah. They, she says, the girls who are least likely to do these things themselves are the ones most interested in crowding around, you know? Like, right. they like... And, like, that is probably why Bridget, I found her to be the most interesting character when I was a kid reading these books. Exactly. Like, That's nothing like me, but... But, Brienne, I'm getting the very strong impression that it was you at 15 who was calling other girls skanks. Yeah. And then she says, girls aren't nice. Okay. Uh, if one person has the nerve to flirt with a camp idol, especially if she is successful, lots of misspellings in this, she isn't cheered on or adored for it. She is hated, whispered about, and called lots of fun names for it. Or at least where I came from. I am sorry you wanted this book to be so depressing. Like, did you want us to stone Bridget to death? And anyway, and then she says, what could be some fair things about Bailey, who she refers to as, quote, the kid with cancer. That dying doesn't make you wise. But her point is less that Bailey is being used as a plot device and more that she's not interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, And then she complains about the pants and says, I hated the completely idiotic premise of the book. Seriously, magic pants that fit everyone. That's the best that could be thought up. Not good. Not good at all. It sounds like Trump. Not good. Yeah. (laughs) Not good at all. I am sorry that you read the whole book and your main focus was the pants. The pants are not the main plot point. My God. Also, you ha- they're, ma- they're literally magic. Yeah. Sorry. That's why they fit everyone. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, if you're like, oh, I don't believe that. It's like, yeah, because it's unbelievable because it's magic. <laughs> like, are you also upset about Harry Potter? Yeah. Because that's not realistic. unrealistic. Yeah. I mean, I hate my aunt and she's never gotten huge. That is a lie, by the way. I have two aunts and I love them both extremely. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you're gonna say that is a lie, by the way. They're both huge. <laughs> oh my god! No, I love my aunts. <laughs> Ask anyone. But yeah, I'm, again, like I'm sorry. The main point, like you could read this book and very easily forget about the pants. Yeah, the pants are not even mentioned all that much once the story gets going. But at least there were a lot of well, some people online who did like the book. Yes, on Common Sense Media. I think that we should start checking Common Sense Media for reviews more often because they also put the ages of the kids, which I think is pretty fun. That's great. Most of them are like 13, 14. And this one is from Movie Book Lover who says, This series is my favorite in the world. It is amazing. It has a little sex, but you can get over it. (laughs) (laughs) It assumes a lot about me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what if I can't? It's so, it feels very cutting. Oh my God, I Do you want to read the one from Teen Writer? Sure. So this comes from Teen Writer. They say, this is a nice book for teenagers, but not really for anyone else. <laughs> Ouch. Dating. What yeah. are we doing here? I don't know. Pack it up, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Close the laptops. This was the first of a four book series. I do like that she doesn't acknowledge the existence of the fifth book. Good call. And this one is the best of the four. I'm not sure I agree. I think that the second one might be my favorite, but... We can get into that when we do our uh, book two episode. She says, it has a lot of positivities regarding friendship. However, I was younger when I read it and was greatly affected by some of the sexual... <laughs> <laughs> so she couldn't get over it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I need to read it again. <laughs> However, I was younger when I read it and was greatly affected by some of the sexual content. <laughs> Disproving movie book lovers theory that you can get over it. Yeah. Uh, I also want to 
be clear that this book is not graphic or explicit at not all. Not even a little. Like you could very easily read it and assume that they had not had sex. Yeah, that they. Just, a lot like, of the kids in the reviews are like, "Don't worry, there's no sex." Like it's yeah. suggested, but nobody has sex in the book. Yeah. Um, plus, being that it is a book about teens, the language is not the greatest, and one of the girls is a big rebel. I love that because we're not entirely sure who it's referring to. Like, it could be Carmen who throws two rocks through her dad's window. Yeah. But my favorite way to interpret it is that it's about Tibby, who is just like, wears cargo pants. <laughs> yeah, and is like kind of pissed off, but it's actually the least rebellious out of Exactly. All of them. <laughs> also, the language is not, there's like hardly any profanity. Yeah, a lot of kids on the website were like, heads up, like, you will see the word C, asterisk, asterisk, you know, crap. <laughs> oh. Hell. I see. Okay. Then again, the other three girls are nice role models, although one is a flirt. Mm, that Bridget. Yep. Lena is my favorite, and I think she makes the best role model. It's more of a pleasure novel than something educational. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but my personal personal favorite comes from Anonymous. There's a lot of discussion on Common Sense Media about what age you should be when you read this book, in part because the website like makes a general suggestion for your age group, and it seems that the consensus from parents and kids was 14. But Anonymous says, yay, I love this book, and I'm 12 years old, so there. <laughs> important to know that there is in all caps. Yes, very important. I think it's great. I think you could e easily read this book at 12. I think I probably did, actually. Okay, braggart. We hadn't all learned to read by 12. <laughs> well, now that we've all read the book and discussed it, what have we learned? It's time to talk about life lessons. I think the first one would be definitely do not spring surprise engagements on your kids. Uh, just don't do it. Seems pointless to even say it since it's so obviously the wrong choice. But again, what the fuck is up with Carmen's dad? Yeah, that's a good one. Also... If you're going to go skinny dipping, you need to assess and weigh the risks and then be willing to accept the possible consequences for your actions. One hundo P. Especially if it's daylight. Yeah, that one's on Lena. Uh, Check in on your friends, especially those who are at a genetic risk for depression. Yeah. That sounds flippant, but really do it. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the book is when Lena has gotten a couple letters from Bridget and she can just tell that Bridget is in a down episode. And so, you know, she books a ticket instead of going home to Bethesda, she flies to California so that she can fly home with Bridget. Just knowing her friend that well, even at such a young age, to know that that's what she needs. Yeah. It's really sweet. And then, of course, there's like Carmen and Tibby's push at each other to confront what's so hard for them. Mm -hmm. Carmen to call her father and be like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> and Tibby to visit her, her dying friend. Yeah, I think that's one of the things about this book that was so special to me and meaningful to me when I read it was that, first of all, I don't have a problem with the whole quote unquote girl power thing. <laughs> and I, cause one of the reasons why is because I think that so much of media about young women is about competition. Yes, and about cattiness. And it, it's like such a, a box that we're pushed into. Mm -hmm. And Brienne is really jazzed. <laughs> yeah. To see us all fall into it, but we will not, Brienne. You will not take us. So I, I love that these are four friends who 
as Anne Brashares puts it in some interviews, love each other unconditionally, almost the way that you love like siblings or family, Mm -hmm. you know? And one of the reasons why they're able to do that is because they've known each other since birth, basically. And their real sincere love for each other, they're not jealous. There's definitely things about each other that they admire Mm -hmm. and kind of wish that they had, but there's not jealousy. There's no resentment. There's no resentment. There's, they just really love each other. And I think me reading that, it gave me a really healthy image of what my friendships can and should look like and that there doesn't need to be all of this all of this drama that I feel like is usually portrayed and portrayals of teen friendships but that's like unavoidable right I don't think it's in this book but in one of the sequels one of the girls I think it's Carmen says do you want to know what the secret is we love each other it's that simple oh yeah But of course, it's pointless for us to talk about lessons anyway, because (laughs) Amber Cher has told us herself, I don't really write with the idea of trying to teach any lessons. I want to tell a story as truthfully and engagingly as I can, and then let the chips fall where they may. But I realize when I get to the end of the story, I care very much that my characters evolve and grow. In spite of their torments and their selfish impulses, I care that they are guided by a spirit of goodness. I want them to set a high standard for compassion and for friendship. Which I really like. It kind of reminds me of when we read TTYL, what Lauren Miracle said about her books and how mm-hmm. she wants to write about tough things. And she's not trying to like teach teens yeah. something. She's just trying to tell a story, which I think is right. I mean, it's really hard to write a novel with a moral in mind. And you, uh-huh. you usually end up with something horrible. <laughs> <laughs> We've all encountered, I think, especially as kids, like media that was primarily trying to turn us into good people. Yeah, no one likes that. And and what I really like about this, too, is that the girls are the ones who make each other better people. Yeah, exactly. And it's through watching each other and learning from each other and loving each other yeah. that they grow. Yeah, it's not like their parents come in or a teacher comes in or a role model comes in and is like, you need to call your dad. Yeah. <laughs> None of them are particularly wise, but they're just wise enough to help each other. Mm-hmm. Which I think oh, I love that. A really, I think it's a really realistic portrayal of teen friendship too. So yeah. when Anne Brashares has talked, been asked like, what does she hope that readers get out of the book? She says, honestly, I mostly hope that they'll enjoy it and take pleasure away. I want it to be the kind of book that will stick with them a bit, the way books I like when I was that age stuck with me. If there's a message, I guess it's just this: love yourself and love your friends unconditionally. And she did make a book that sticks with you. Sarah, you said you reread this every summer? Yeah. I mean, that's bananas. <laughs> yeah. I know. I've read this book probably more times than I've read any book. It, when I'm reading it, I'll have like entire paragraphs memorized. Yeah. I so enjoyed reading this book and I'm very excited to reread the rest of the series. Yeah, me too. So I think it's time to rate it. I think so. Today we are going to be rating the book out of 10 dead guinea pigs. <laughs> Sarah's idea. I loved this book. I thought it was great. I thought it was such a fun read. I will rate this book 9 out of 10 dead guinea pigs. It's really hard for me to decide if it's 9 or 10 dead guinea pigs for me. I think I'll give it a 9 too because I'd like to give the, myself room to grow because I think that I might like some of the sequels even more. So I'm also going to give it 9 out of 10 dead, frozen guinea pigs. Thank you, Sarah. Yes. Very wise. Before we tell you where to find us, 
this episode was so exciting because this is the first one with me and Sarah recording together in one room, made possible by our two beautiful friends, Chris and Brittany, whose house we are recording at, who so lovingly prepared this room for us. Yes. It's a very professional job we're running here. Thank you, Chris and Brittany and Banana, their cat. When we were setting up, you know, it was looking kind of janky because we had Mike's sitting on books and we're mm-hmm. sitting on stools. Sitting and on stuff. a picnic basket. Yeah. And I was like, jokingly, was like, wow, this is just like NPR. And I was like, I'm Terry Gross. I'm Terry and I'm gross. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm amazed that like neither of us have come up with that yet. I know, right? But it is true. I am Terry and I am gross. <laughs> and this is Reading During Recess. Yes. And Sarah, where can they find us? Where can they find Reading During Recess? You can find our pod on Instagram or Twitter at reading underscore recess. And you can also email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com if you have opinions or thoughts on the Sisterhood of the Traveling Plants. Plants? <laughs> Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Please do share tweet at us comment on our posts email us and if you have thoughts about what upcoming books you'd like us to cover we'd also love to hear from you it's always fun to hear from our listeners and and if you are still listening we love you unconditionally thank you guys so much (laughs) we have so much fun making these and we hope you're having fun listening yes please if you're enjoying them rate and review us on apple podcast and to all you quiet girls bitter girls angry girls and brave girls stay reading